The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Merry Christmas. (laughs) You know, most Christians view today as the birth of Christ. Which is kind of ironic because most churches are not meeting today. And the very churches that aren't meeting today are the people who say, keep Christ in Christmas. First of all, he doesn't belong in Christmas. It has nothing to do with Christ. But, <laughs> you know, okay, I'm not going to bash. I said I'm not going to bash Christmas. I'm glad you're here on this December 25th. We know that Christ was born on September 11th, Okay. And if you want more details on that, go to the website and search for the message, The Incarnation and the Zodiac. We talk about when Christ was really born, and he also wasn't born in some stable. So if you want more information on that, go to the message, No Room in the Holiday Inn. And that'll explain to you Christmas, so I'm not going to bash Christmas today. But we know he wasn't born today, but that's not important, okay? The date Christ was born is not important. What is important is that he was born. Thank you. Preach it, sister. The scriptures, the scriptures never tell us to celebrate his birth. But the fact of his birth, like I said, is of huge significance. And to really understand the significance of Christ's birth and what it means, I want to start this morning at the very beginning. The very beginning. John 1 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now The Word was already in existence when God created in heaven and earth. In the beginning here, this is the very beginning. He doesn't say, in the beginning the Word became, or He came into existence, or He came to be. In fact, John uses the Greek word here, ami, which means to be or to exist. And it suggests continued existence. So, in the beginning was the Word. We often refer to this as the, the pre-creation time. As, it's, this is eternity past. That's what he's talking about. This is the time that John referred to here. At the beginning of this eternity. Don't think about it too long because you'll break something. But all, go back as far as you want. You can still go back further. Always and ever at the very beginning. When there was nothing else. The Word existed so the word has been in existence ever since the beginning since eternity passed and then it says the word was with god now this prohibits us from seeing no distinction between the father and the word which many people don't seem to see there is a distinction the son the word is distinct from the father this is trinitarian it says and the word was God. People, this statement could not be much clearer. In fact, these four Greek words may be the clearest declaration of the deity of Christ in all of Scripture. The Greek verb, the word, the Greek verb, ami, which is was here, means to be, to exist. It suggests continued existence. So the word always existed as Yahweh. 
John does not say, and the Word was divine, or the Word was like God. He makes the bold statement, the Word was God. And I see Christians or people who say they're Christians denying the deity of Christ. I just don't understand that. He leaves no room here for anyone to see the Word of God as anything less than God Himself. He's not God to some degree. He's not God in some way. When John says the Word was God, he means Yahweh. He doesn't mean a deity or someone in the spirit world. He means Yahweh, the supreme God. Joshua put it this way in 22.22. The mighty one God, Yahweh. The mighty one God, Yahweh. And the phrase here, the mighty one God, Yahweh, in the Hebrew is El Elohim Yahweh, and it can be translated, Yahweh is the greatest God. And he says it twice. We've got to get that, people. Yahweh is the greatest God. John's description here of the word as being with God shows that the word was in one sense distinct from God. He was and is the second person of the Trinity. Let me back up again. The word was distinct from the Father. He is God. But he's the second person of the Trinity who is distinct from the Father and distinct from the Holy Spirit in form of in the form of a substance. However, John was also careful to note that the word was in another sense fully God. The word was God. He wasn't less than God the Father. He wasn't different than the Spirit in essence. Thus John made one of the greatest trinitarian statements in the Bible in this verse. In his essence, the Word is equal with the Father, but he exists as a separate person within the Godhead. So the Word always existed as Yahweh. And then, at a point in time, Yahweh became a man. Now Luke tells us how this happened. He says that an angel came to the virgin girl named Mary, and he told her, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua. The name Yeshua means Yahweh's salvation. That's why I don't say Jesus. Jesus means nothing. Jesus, you know, if you would say it in Spanish, I guess. It, it has no meaning. But Yeshua means Yahweh's salvation. Now, prior to this, there was no Yeshua. Okay? Let's go on in the text. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born unto you will be called Holy, the Son of God. So this child is going to be the Holy Son of God. Yahweh had an offspring with a human woman and produced the Savior of mankind, Yeshua. Now John explains it this way, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I like the way the complete Jewish Bible puts this, The Word became a human being and lived with us. And we saw his Shekinah, the Shekinah of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. The eternal Word, 
who was with God and was God, the Word who created all things became a human being. This verse teaches us the staggering truth that Yeshua of Nazareth was Yahweh become man. The divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby. Unable to do more than lie there and stare and wiggle and make noises. He needed to be fed. He needed to be changed. He needed to be taught to talk like any other child. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, in the chapter called The Obstinate Toy Soldier, said this, The eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not only a man, but before that, a baby, and before that, a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. You know, the more you think about this, the more staggering it gets. God became a man. I mean, there's nothing in fiction that's so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. The Word became flesh. This has been expressed by the theological term, the incarnation. Now, the incarnation comes from two Latin words, in plus cargo, meaning enfleshment. The act of assuming flesh. Yahweh chose to become united to true humanity. Now, four times in John 1, 1 and 2, he uses the imperfect tense of the verb amy to say that the Word was God. And all of John's statements regarding his preexistence are in this tense. But in John 1, 14, he uses the verb ginomai, and this is in the aorist tense. And the aorist usage here refers to something historical time in past as the beginning of the new state. Some historical time in the past, He became a new state. He became man. He wasn't before this. This happened at a point in time. So to his eternal deity, he added perfect humanity. Prior to this, the second person of the Trinity was the eternal word, as John said. But at a point in time, he added humanity to his divine being. He became the God-man. Now, this joining together has been designated as the hypostatic union. Okay, write these down. I'm going to give you a test on these when we're done to make sure you're paying attention, all right? The term hypostatic is derived from the Greek word hypostasis, meaning personal. Thus, the hypostatic union is the personal union or the joining together of the two natures of Yeshua, divine and human. Theologian Louis Burkhoff helps shed some further light on the terms nature and person as they relate to the doctrine of the hypostatic union. He aptly comments that he said, the term nature denotes the sum total of all the essential qualities of a thing, that which makes it what it is. The term person denotes the complete substance endowed with reason and consequently a responsible subject of its own actions. Well, let's talk for a minute about what happened in the hypostatic union. Christ did not have two personalities because of his two natures. He was one person with two natures, divine and human. Because he is a man does not make him less God. 
nor does his being God prevent him from being truly human. Yeshua was 100% God and 100% man. Now you say you can't have 200% of son. This is the unique person of the universe, okay? This is the only time this has ever happened. And this is where we get the term theanthropic. That's another term that will be on the test, okay? So you've got to know what it means. Theanthropic comes from theos, which means God, and anthropos, man. Yeshua, the Christ, is the God-man. He's one person with two natures. Now, the integrity of the attributes of his divine nature were not corrupted, they were not compromised or diminished by the fact that the divine nature was united permanently with the human nature. Nor were the integrity of the attributes of his human nature corrupted or compromised or diminished by the fact that he was God. His two natures, though united, retained their separate identities. There's no mixture of his divine nature with that of his human nature. His divine attributes are always united to his divine nature. His human attributes are always united to his human nature. Deity remains deity. Humanity remains humanity. And the reason for this is the infinite cannot become finite. The immutable can't be changed. No attribute of deity was altered when our Lord became a man through the incarnation. And the same holds true when he died on the cross. To take away a single attribute from his divine nature would destroy his deity. And to take away a single attribute from his perfect humanity would be to destroy his humanity. The two natures of Christ are not only united without affecting the attributes of the two natures, they're also combined in one person. Shedd, in his dogmatic theology, writes the following. Previous to the assumption of a human nature, the Logos could not experience a human feeling because he had no human heart. But after this assumption, he could. Previous to the incarnation, he could not have a finite perception because he had no finite intellect. But after the event, he could. Previous to the Incarnation, the self-consciousness of the Logos was eternal only, that is, without succession. But subsequent to the Incarnation, it was both eternal and temporal, and without succession. Prior to the Incarnation, the second person of the Trinity could not have human sensations and experiences. But after it, he could. The unincarnate Logos could think and feel only like God. He had only one form of consciousness. The incarnate Logos can think and feel either like God or like man. I hope you're grasping some of this. I mean, this is the marvel of the incarnation. Now here's, gets a little more tricky, but hang with me, okay? Sometimes attributes true of the entire person are spoken of. In other words, you read something about what Yeshua did, and it's true of his theanthropic person. For example, I think the best example would be he's called Savior and he's called Redeemer. Both of those natures are necessary for the atonement. He's got to be both. But sometimes attributes true only of his deity are talked about, but the whole person is the subject. For example... 
In John 8, 58, Yeshua said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Can that be said of his human nature? No. Okay? He is speaking here of the attribute of eternality. This is an attribute only true of deity, but the theanthropic person is the subject. Christ is the subject here, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. Sometimes attributes true of humanity are talked about, but the whole person is the subject. For example, John 19, 28. After this, Yeshua, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Was God thirsty? No. But the humanity of Yeshua was thirsty. The I here, though, refers to the theanthropic person. Here's another one that I think we a lot of people misunderstand. Mark 13, 31 and 32. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels nor the Son of God, but only the Father. People say, he's not God because he didn't know this. I'm like, people, come on. God is not ignorant. God is omniscient. He knows all things. But the humanity of Christ was limited in knowledge. The Son here refers to the theanthropic person. But by his humanity, he was limited in knowledge. During the incarnation, Christ was both omniscient and ignorant. Omnipotent and weak. Omnipresent and localized. Sovereign and submissive. Are you beginning to see the mystery of godliness, God manifest in the flesh? It's incredible. He must be the divine person in order that his redemptive work may have that infinite value. But he also must have a human nature, not simply to become our substitute, but also in order that he may understand and experience the experiences of genuine humanity. And if you get nothing else out of this, please get the fact that Christ was real human. He knows what you feel. He's been through experiences. He knows what humanity is all about. And because of that, he can be our great high priest because he understands the things we experience because he is truly one of us. He possesses a true and genuine humanity apart from sin. Now, if you're having trouble understanding the doctrine of the hypostatic union, you're not alone, okay? Daniel Webster, the 19th century statesman, once dined in Boston with several eminent literary figures, and soon the conversation turned to Christianity. And Webster, being a convinced Christian, confessed his belief in Christ and the atoning work of Christ, and a Unitarian minister at the table responded, Mr. Webster, can you comprehend that Jesus Christ could be both God and man? And Webster responded, No, sir, I cannot understand it. And I would be ashamed to acknowledge Christ as my Savior if I could comprehend it. He could be no greater than myself. And such is my conviction of accountability to God, my sense of sinfulness before Him, and my knowledge of my own incapacity to recover myself, that I feel the need of a superhuman Savior. Amen, Webster. Good answer. Martin Luther writes this, Reason cannot comprehend this, but we believe it. And this is also the testimony of Scripture, that Christ is true God and that He has also become a man.
Now, what the question we need to ask here is why? Why did God become a man? I mean, what was the point of that? Why would God do that? And the answer is found in the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel, and it's found in the second chapter of the book of Hebrews. Let's look at Matthew first. Matthew says, She will bear a son, and you will call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. That was, that's why he was born. He was born to save us, save people from their sin. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same. He became flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Bottom line, people, Christ was born to die. The reason that Yeshua was born a baby in Bethlehem was specifically that he might die. Thanks, Bob. Bob made this slide and sent it to me yesterday. He said, you might want to use this. I'm like, okay, cool. You got the baby. You got the... Now, I really don't like pictures of the crucifixion because Isaiah said his form didn't resemble that of a man. That looks like a man to me, right? I mean, so we don't, we can't comprehend the beating that he actually took. But I think it, it portrays, you know, you got this little cute baby born, and people like to think about that. But the reason this baby was born is so he would die. You know, the pre-incarnate Christ couldn't die for us. Why not? Because God can't die, right? He became a man so he could die. And the Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. We have all sinned, and we therefore deserve the wrath of God. But Yeshua died for us. He paid our sin debt. He took our penalty. As a sinless substitute, He satisfied the just demands of a holy God. People, you got to understand this. When we get into heaven, it's not because God overlooked something or let us slide or whatever. We get there, we deserve to be there because the price was paid in full. So when you walk into heaven, lift your head up high, okay? You belong to be there. Your price was paid. Your debt is totally satisfied. Look at 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ suffered once for sins. You know, it's hard to understand how this innocent child born in Bethlehem would be required to die for the sins of the human race, but that is what Yeshua came to do. To die to pay the sins of the elect. He says, the righteous for the unrighteous. You know, one of the greatest mysteries of the gospel is that a holy God would choose to love an unholy people. We can't explain it. We can only embrace it. The just God died for unjust man. And if it hadn't been for Yeshua, if it hadn't been for the gift of His birth, we would have to serve, we would be served with justice rather than mercy. And justice means that we perish. Eternal death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ our Lord. Our Lord's birth was a fantastic miracle. It was God becoming man. The purpose, though, of that was that He would die for the sins of His people. He did it for us. 
He did it so He could bring us to Himself. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows His love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God shows His love. People say, I don't know if God loves me. Well, if you're a believer and Christ died for you, that's the greatest demonstration of love you're ever going to see. He died for us. He did all the work. What we need to do is trust in what He has done for us. Luther said this, Nothing more is required of justification than to hear of Jesus Christ and believe on Him as our Savior. Amen Amen is right. That's what it's all about, people. Luther is right here. Nothing more is required. Now, the church adds all kinds of extra things. Well, you got to pray a prayer, you got to sign a card, you got to walk an aisle, you got to repent, you have to do all these things. No, you have to believe that Christ died for you. Salvation is free, but it wasn't cheap. Our response to this is to believe that Christ's death and His death alone can save us. Our response is to trust in Him. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes... It is faith in Christ's person and work that brings eternal life. All right, so we've looked at Christ's eternality. The Word always existed. At a point in time, the Word became Yeshua. Now, the question often arises, what happens to the God-man at the ascension? Did he go back to being the Word and got rid of the humanity? What happened there? There's a disagreement on this subject. I know, that's shocking. Okay, that's shocking for you to believe that. But, so I'm asking you to be a Berean and to study this out for yourself. But I believe the incarnation was permanent. Okay? Think about this with me. If the hypostatic union was dissolved, there would no longer be Yeshua. You'd go back to being the word, Yeshua would be gone. Because Yeshua is the God-man. Now, if one of these natures is removed, he would no longer be the God-man. He wouldn't be Yeshua anymore. The Heidelberg Catechism says this. After his ascension, Jesus was localized in heaven and yet with his people no matter where we are. Localization without limitation is what they call that. Now, according to his humanity, Jesus is not on earth. But according to his deity, he is never absent from us. See, the hypostatic union did not end with the resurrection or the ascension. Yeshua continues as a high priest forever. Hebrews 6.20, where Yeshua has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Yeshua's high priestly office depends on his becoming like his brothers. In other words, becoming a man. Hebrews 2.17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. John Stott put it this way. The two natures, manhood and godhood, were united already at his birth, never 
to be divided. Shed, in his dogmatic theology, writes, Though becoming in time the theanthropic person, the God-man, of the redeemed, the per- theanthropic personality of the Redeemer continues forever. This is taught in, and he's quoting scripture here, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God overall, blessed forever. He goes on to quote another scripture, Colossians, and for in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells now and forever bodily. And we have a great high priest who has passed into the heavens. So, Christ is still the God-man. Now, to me, one of the strongest verses on the permanence of the Incarnation is this. Hebrews 13.8 Yeshua the Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, let's look at the context here first. This verse can't be understood as some theological assertion that is unrelated to the context in which we find it. All right, This verse is here to encourage them that he who yesterday was the source and object of the triumphant faith of their leaders is still the same all-powerful Redeemer and Lord and will continue so forever. And even though successive generations pass away, Yeshua the Christ remains the same the Savior of the living as well as the departed, and the Savior of all to the end of time. Now, the writer of Hebrews here rarely uses the formula Yeshua the Christ, which I think makes it even more significant here. Who's the writer saying is the same? It's Yeshua. He's not talking about the Word. He's talking about the theanthropic person. It is Yeshua the Christ. He's not talking here about the pre-incarnate Word. He's talking about the God-man. And of Yeshua, he says, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, yesterday, in this text, can only go back as far as the incarnation. It can't go back farther than that. That's where the God-man came into being. And as I said earlier, if the hypostatic union was dissolved there would no longer be Yeshua. But the writer of Hebrews says, Yeshua is the same. Forever. So the hypostatic union is forever. Believers, here's what this means to us. There's a man in heaven who knows exactly what it's like to be human. He knows our pains. He knows our sufferings. And as God, He can get get us through them. Okay? In his sermon on Pentecost, Peter said this, Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So we know that David wanted to build a temple for Yahweh, but Yahweh wouldn't let him. But God gave David a promise 2 Samuel 7, 12. He says, When your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you're dead, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. One of your offspring, one of your descendants, I'm going to raise up and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
This is a descendant of David. God had promised David that one of his seed would be set on David's throne and rule and reign forever. The Jews understood that the Messiah was descended from David. Thus far in the argument, Peter has proved that the Messiah must rise from the dead and ascend to the throne. Now he proves that Yeshua, this is this Messiah of whom David has spoken. He said, this Yeshua, God raised up, of that we were all witnesses. So Yeshua, who is the theanthropic person, is the promised descendant of David, whose kingdom would be established forever. If the hypostatic union were dissolved, who reigns over the everlasting kingdom? When I say the incarnation was permanent, I'm not saying that Christ still has his physical body. Hang on a second. I believe that he, when he arose from the dead, he rose in the same body that was put into the grave. Look what Luke says, Luke 24, 39. The Lord's talking here. He says, see my hands and my feet. Why is he showing him his hands and feet? What's he want him to see? The scars, the nails, right? The holes that they were put there. That I myself, it's I myself, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So a spirit, he said, I'm not a spirit, I got flesh and bones, I'm human. His hands were nailed scarred. It's the same body that was put in the grave that came out of it. There's a popular Christian song now that says, the only scars in heaven won't belong to you and me. I love the song, it's cool, but it's not theologically correct at all, because there won't be any scars in heaven. Okay, because they see, they still believe Yeshua still got these scars in heaven. No, at the ascension, Christ received his spiritual body, his heavenly body. And now he is in heaven. He is still the theanthropic person. He still has a human nature, but he has a spiritual body instead of a physical body. Look what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable what is, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Now these terms here, perishable and imperishable, these are terms used by Philo and other Jews to describe the gods, the imperishable. They are imperishable. The Stoics use that language to talk about the pneumatic beings or the spirit beings. They're imperishable. So whatever the heavenly body is made of, it's made of stuff that's imperishable. Just like those beings who are imperishable. So Paul is saying that the believers will be like the gods in the resurrection. We will receive a body that is imperishable. When our body dies, when we, we will receive a heavenly body, we'll still be human. And our great high priest is still the God-man. Yeshua is a single, undivided personality. The two natures are inseparably united forever. For all time, He'll be the God-man. Both fully human and fully God, two distinct natures contained in one being. Believers, our high priest is a man who understands us completely because He is a man. He knows the pain of suffering. He knows the heartbreak of betrayal. He understands everything there is about being human. And he's not only a man, he's the God-man. 
So he has the ability to comfort, to strengthen, and get us through it. Incredible, incredible truth the incarnation is, people. God left heaven, became a man to die for us. He died, he rose, he received a spiritual body, and he dwells in heaven forever and always, the theanthropic person, our high priest. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the incredible, marvelous truth of the incarnation. Lord, it is hard to wrap our heads around and understand a God-man. One person, two natures. Thank you for the truth of scriptures, Lord. Help us to bow before them, even when we can't comprehend it fully. But I thank you, Lord, that you understand, as our high priest, exactly what we're dealing with. I thank you so much that that little baby in Bethlehem grew to be an adult man and died on a brutal cross to pay our sin debt, that we might have a relationship with you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for this incredible miracle. Amen.